Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Nosley, the rise of the far right and the problem with Prevent. Nosley is the suburb of Merseyside, where a recent anti-refugee protest turned into a riot outside a hotel housing asylum seekers. Amid violent scenes, a police van was set on fire and 15 arrests made. This follows the firebombing last October of a processing centre for migrants in Dover. Back in 2016, the MP Joe Cox was murdered by Thomas Mayer to advance the cause of white supremacism, while in 2019, neo-Nazi Jack Renshaw was jailed for life for plotting to kill another MP, Rosie Cooper. Renshaw was a former member of the BMP and spokesman for the now-banned terrorist organisation National Action. Despite these and other incidents, a review of the government's anti-terror programme Prevent by William Shawcross suggested that too much emphasis was being placed on radicalisation by the far right, not enough on Islamist extremism. His findings have been accepted by the Home Office. Does he have a point or is Shawcross in danger of downplaying one risk whilst exaggerating another? We'll hear from the Labour MP Afzal Khan, Professor John Homewood, a sociologist from Nottingham University, and in a moment, Zoe Gardner, a long-time migration rights campaigner. Before that, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which features content that you can't read anywhere else. Find out how to subscribe over at our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com that's at bylinetimes.com and look out for the subscriptions there it really would help us to stay on air and do the work that we're doing with the podcast first then zoe gardner what did she make of the scenes in nosley hi adrian thanks for having me yeah the scenes at nosley were absolutely horrifying and quite terrifying, really, just to see on social media when they started to pop up. A huge blaze and violent group of hundreds of people throwing rocks, um, holding racist placards that had obviously been pre-printed and professionally printed. So clearly a very organised group and a very significant numbers in that group. And obviously the people who will have been most terrified by those scenes were the residents of that hotel, the men, women and children who are seeking safety and seeking protection in the UK and who have escaped war zones in many cases or situations of persecution and danger, only to be faced with these awful violent scenes right outside their front door here in the UK. So a real disgrace, a real moment, I think, or at least I hope, for the government to sort of re-examine its approach so far towards far-right violence, towards far-right rhetoric, and the government from the top levels has been leading the way on this rhetoric that directly fuels groups like this who think that they are then justified in taking this kind of despicable action. And and a, a huge irony that it happened right after this publication of another report trying to minimise the issue of far-right violence. And I think This really is the approach of the government, isn't it? They're trying to create a rhetorical stance where they are on the side of the people who are racist, who are extremists, who are bigots, 
And there's that well-known phrase of virtue signaling and everybody on the left or who supports progressive issues is accused of virtue signaling. I think this government has developed a very strong line in vice signaling, dog whistling out to a certain section of society that they don't take racism seriously, that they don't consider the far right to be a problem. And this is the result, an emboldened far right out on our streets, terrorizing communities and terrorizing some of the most vulnerable people in our communities, which are asylum seekers. In what sense do you think the government is taking the lead on this? Well, you'll and your listeners will have seen and heard the despicable comments that the Home Secretary Suella Braverman made in Parliament to call the arrival of asylum seekers, homeless men, women and children seeking refuge on our shores, an invasion. It's absolutely incredibly incendiary language, and she refused to apologise for it on multiple occasions, including when confronted about it by a survivor of the Holocaust whose family had perished in that tragic historical occurrence, who said that the words she had used were reminiscent of the words that were used in the build-up to the Holocaust in Germany. And she still refused to apologise for that kind of characterization of people, again, who are of no threat to us whatsoever. It's a deliberate characterization of them as a threat, which obviously then leads to a plausible justification for a violent response to a threat. So I do think that it's desperately needed for our political leaders to take responsibility for these vulnerable people. They're housed in the care of the state, and it's very clear that they've made the decision that it's a vote winner not to take that responsibility, and in fact, to fan the flames of this hatred across our society because they've got nothing else to campaign on. They're not running our country well, to put it quite mildly. And the only thing they can do in order to bolster their own support is to amp up the hatred towards foreigners. Even when the Home Secretary issued a statement condemning what had happened in Knowsley, there was what some people regarded anyway as a caveat. She said, the alleged behaviour of some asylum seekers is never an excuse for violence. Now, she did condemn it. She said, I condemn the appalling disorder in Knowsley last night. But in that statement, she appeared to give some credence to the view that there might be some justification for people to be angry about the presence of these asylum seekers. For people who don't know, there was a suggestion, an allegation that some asylum seekers connected with this hotel had been involved in grooming or paedophilia. Yeah, what an incredibly dispiriting situation that we find ourselves in, that we cannot rely on the Home Secretary, the government of this country, to condemn outright, without caveat, violent racist thuggery. It is extraordinary. And of course, not a word in her statement about the terror that the asylum seekers had experienced who were housed in that hotel. Now, I I do think that there's a couple of points to draw out of this, though, that are really important. One is that it's, of course, the case that among asylum seekers and refugees, just as among any other population of any ethnicity and any nationality and any immigration status, there are people who 
commit crimes. That's something that we can be perfectly honest about. What is racist is to say that because a person of one ethnicity or an asylum seeker may have committed any crime, that that is in any way justification for targeting or changing policies towards an entire group of people of the same ethnicity who, of course, are in no other way connected to that person. That's extremely racist and wrong. And then, of course, this narrative specifically linking asylum seekers to ideas of paedophilia and sexual assault is another very racist and long-standing tactic of the far right to weaponize a pseudo sort of fake concern for the rights of women and the rights of children and to weaponize that against the rights of refugees, who, of course, may be women, may be children, but also will have been escaping situations where they have been persecuted in exactly these ways. Many of the people seeking asylum in this country, including the men, will have been the victims of sexual assault and sexual exploitation, either in their countries of origin or en route to the UK. They will have been the victims of persecution on the basis of their sexuality as well, if they belong to sexual minorities. And in many cases, obviously, they'll be the victims of patriarchal societies and the norms either towards women or men that result in the need for them to take flight. So the idea that this is being weaponized against them is doubly disgusting. And all women's rights organizations in this country that I've seen, you know, refuge among them and rape crisis and so on have repeatedly stood up against the weaponization of so-called protection of women, which is, again, a very patriarchal sort of way of sort of uh, there are women to abuse, because let's be clear, there are an uncountable number of allegations about members of the far right being paedophiles or abusing women and abusing children. There's a lot of projection going on, a lot of false narratives, but this, this one really, really, really sticks, this racist smear campaign about asylum seekers being somehow uniquely likely to abuse children. And Residents of Knowlesley and the surrounding area have had leaflets through their doors over the last few days, even since this demonstration riot, rather. Again, repeating these smears and these baseless rumours and these lies and racist sort of characterizations of asylum seekers as being sexual threats. So it's definitely a tactic that they know helps them in their recruitment, boil some blood. Suella Braverman must stand up and state very, very clearly that this is not true, that it is dangerous, inflammatory and racist. And she's completely failed in her obligation to do that. And it's one of the many, many reasons that she has failed as our Home Secretary. And really, she shouldn't be in that position at all. I've spoken previously to an academic, Dr. Ella Cobain, has done extensive research into the whole notion of grooming gangs. And she told me that it's very much a misnomer. What I'm saying is right from the start, from when Andrew Norfolk launched this in The Times and claimed there was, you know, a tidal wave of offending sweeping the nation and characterised it as this new racial crime threat of what he called on-street grooming, the numbers that are held up to support this narrative are very, very small in the context of the broader problem of child sexual abuse, which genuinely is epidemic in this country and elsewhere. So, you know, what we have is several very high profile, very nasty cases that conform to the stereotypes 
And of course, they deserve attention, but they should not be allowed to attract this sort of disproportionate focus that takes attention away from the fact that actually child sexual abuse occurs on a huge scale, affects a really wide range of victims and involves a really wide range of offenders. So if I can just give you some statistics just for the sake of context, in 2019-20, the police recorded almost 75,000 child sex offences. And Full Fact did some good digging on this and found that in 2015, 6,500 people were prosecuted for child sex offences. Yet the numbers that are held up as the sort of supposed statistical proof of the grooming gang's narrative are 56 offenders that the Times looked at over a period of 14 years or 264 offenders that the Quilliam Foundation looked at over a period of 12 years. So you can see how it's like really, really quite a tiny, tiny proportion of a much, much bigger issue. And I think that's what makes this really a sort of quintessential moral panic. What do we know about the ethnicity of people who abuse children, traffic children for abuse? I mean, the vast majority of child sex offenders in this country are white, which makes sense given that it's a majority white country. Again, Full Fact did some digging on this and they found that Asian people were not overrepresented among people prosecuted for sexual offences in general or child sexual offences in particular. And I know that the pushback one often gets in this area, particularly from the far right, is, oh, yeah, but Asian, you know, it's such a big category. And we're not talking about Chinese people. We're talking about Pakistanis. And, you know, this is a Muslim problem. But the issue is, again, the numbers are very small. And also religion isn't something that data is collected on for crime data. That's Dr. Ella Cobain. And uh, one thing that strikes me, Zoe, listening to that and looking at the coverage of Nosley, is that the far right does seem to be targeting migrants now with ever greater intensity. There was the firebombing of a migrant centre in Kent. And for a country that prides itself on its tolerance, on its welcome, to people from other cultures and particularly from those fleeing persecution. I'd suggest this is a very worrying sign. Yes, it very much is. And unfortunately, both with that attempted firebombing attack and with the riots more recently, I think that we're all horrified. I don't think anybody is surprised, though. I think that this is an inevitable outcome of the direction of rhetoric that we've been on for years and years now, now ever since really this Conservative government came into power. And well, rhetoric wasn't particularly good before that, but I do think that it's been ramped up in the last five years in particular. And it's interesting to see that it coincides with a general relaxing of attitudes towards immigration. Immigration, just before we voted on the Brexit referendum, was the most important issue to the most people in this country. And a lot of people thought that it had detrimental effects on both our culture and our economy. Since then, and actually quite steadily for the past decade, since 2012, opinions towards immigration in this country have become far, far more positive, with a really significant swing towards people recognising the positive contributions that migrants make both culturally and economically, and people understanding that in these difficult economic times that we're in right now, 
the contribution of more immigration would actually be a positive. And so what happens when this pendulum swings from place to place is that the scapegoat can always change. When we were going into the Brexit referendum, the scapegoat was basically a stereotypical idea of an Eastern European plumber or similar type of worker. They were the big bad guy, the bogeyman. Now, people are very positive towards that kind of worker. I think most people wish that more of them would still have been sensitized to come through more humane immigration policies. And so the target is currently very, very strongly on asylum seekers and refugees. The government has, I can only believe, deliberately mismanaged the asylum system to such a degree that now people wait for on average well over a year, even to have an initial decision on their claim. So they're dumping these people without the right to work, without the right to sort of start to rebuild their lives and to settle down for over a year in communities across the country. And there's no reason why decision-making has slowed down to that degree, except because it has been deprioritized by this government. As I said before, it's their fallback option. They're messing up on absolutely every other thing the nhs all our public services public finances the police forces the legal system any part of our society that you care to mention is falling to bits and so the government falls back again and again and more and more harshly on this rhetoric against asylum seekers and the government has deprioritized a focus on ending racism in our society, we've had various reports that downplayed the impact of racism. We've had many senior government figures downplaying racism, saying that it's, it's really over, stop whining about it, which is absolutely absurd. The result of this is absolutely unsurprising. It's extremely dangerous and it's only set to get worse. Um, and I don't want to be hyperbolic, but I do think that we should think about the fact that a Holocaust survivor was asking the Home Secretary to moderate her language. I do think that we need to think quite seriously about how if these far-right gangs, given the tools to recruit ever more widely and see themselves as being able to get away with violence of the kind we've seen lately without serious rebuke from the country and from those in power, then I do think we are heading in an extremely dangerous direction. I think we do need to take that threat very seriously. That's Zoe Gardner then. Let's welcome to the conversation the Labour MP Afsal Khan. He's the MP for Manchester Gorton and Professor John Homewood from Nottingham University. Afsal, I'll talk about the impact of Prevent on the Muslim community. But firstly, what are your thoughts on what happened at Knowsley? Well, it's a shock to like many other people. And like we've just heard, I mean, you can see, you know, when the politicians are not being responsible, then the consequences on the ground. Uh, and that, I think, is the challenge that we are facing. People uh, using these internet uh, and uh, social media to paddle things, even not uh, being tested or uh, which are accurate. So peddling false information, which winds people up, and then people take those actions that we've seen, totally unacceptable. And William Shawcross has said that we are in danger of exaggerating the risk of far-right extremism, that behaviour which isn't really extremism is being drawn into the net of prevent, and we're in danger of failing to appreciate the gravity of Islamist extremism. Yeah, well, for me, I think for the starting problem is uh, Shawcroft himself, Shawcroft himself being appointed to look at this 
something very important, I would say, which we as a society actually did need to look at. And I think the government has blown this opportunity by appointing someone who has got a terrible record of prejudices that he himself holds. So I think in a way, government has deliberately brought this person in knowing very well what his views are and then expecting a report which he has produced. So in that sense, I'm not surprised. But what I am shocked about is the need of the society and how the way he's produced this report has sort of focused on one particular community and the danger always is when you over-focus on one side, then you lose focus on the other areas. And in this sense is the crux of the matter of this report. And the more you look at it again and again, you see his bias coming through. And what you would expect from a standard of any report, he just actually fails. And um, we should be clear, Afzal, there is a real and very serious threat from Islamist extremism. We saw it in the tragic bombings, the 7-7 bombings, the bombing of the Manchester Arena. So let's just be absolutely clear, neither you yes. nor yes. we on this podcast are seeking in any way to minimise the very real threat that there is from Islamist extremists. Not at all. I mean, I acknowledge that. And in fact, I was involved with the, I remember I was the Lord Mayor of Manchester at the time when 7-7 happened. And for us to deal with that issue is there. But the question ultimately is, we're talking about prevent idea. And we also got to take into account that things are evolving. And there are dangers coming from different aspects, from different angles not just from one angle. And if you, and this is my key point, I think here, that if you just focus on one, then you basically lose the sight, the danger, which is from other sides. And that is not good for the society. And if you then look at the last of the two, three terrorist attacks, and if I can label it like that, they're not come from Muslims, background people. They've actually come from far right. And therefore, what we have a responsibility is for our enforcement agencies, their hands should not be tied. They should be able to meet with the challenges which are out there. And wherever those threats come from, they should deal with it to protect us. And John, just explain to listeners then how people come to be within the net of prevent and how that is then accelerated if there is deemed to be a serious problem. It's important to be strongly and robustly opposed to terrorism. That is correct. But what prevents is dealing with is something quite a long way upstream from terrorist activities. It's engaged with what it calls extremism and extremism, which is not in itself unlawful. So the idea is that somebody might become involved in some extremist ideas, these, if they were unlawful, would be the object of criminal sanction. For example, we have nonviolent terrorism as well as violent terrorism. So nobody involved in prevents has done anything unlawful. Uh, if there's a worry expressed about them, then they become assessed within a prevent panel. That prevent panel has counterterrorism officers working on it, 
And at the end of the process, they might be adopted onto what's called the channel deradicalization program. At that point, there is strong counterterrorism officer involvement in it. So, but even those adopted onto a deradicalization program, unless they come into the process from within the prison system where they may well have committed non-violent terrorist offences, if they are, in a sense, coming from outside within the community, they still, even at that point, have committed no offence. But we have got serious counter-terrorism officers making an assessment. And if we look at the latest data that we have for 2021, we discover that 14% of all referrals are judged to warrant going on to the channel program. Of that number, 46% are from the extreme right, and just 22% are from Islamist extremist concerns. That indicates that within the prevent process, not liberal do-gooders, not social workers, but security officers, counter-terrorism police officers have judged far-right extremists to warrant channel interventions in a much greater proportion than Islamist extremists. And indeed, as a total of referrals, only 25% are from the far right, but of all those referred, 46% of far right referrals are judged to be the most serious. So even in the data that Shawcross is putting forward, and broadly speaking, he endorses the channel program, says that it has stopped people from becoming terrorists, then the greatest proportion of people that it must have stopped by his logic are those involved in the far right. So how can he possibly argue on the basis of the data that is available from the Home Office that the far right don't represent a great threat? The second argument he puts forward is that the only people who are critical of prevent are Muslim groups, some particular groups that he classifies as Muslim extremists. But the paradox is that we can treat the Shawcross report itself as a criticism of prevent. It's criticism, criticizing the idea that Islamist extremism is drawn too narrowly in its definition and right-wing extremism is drawn too widely. Notice if it's drawn too widely, it's still being judged within the prevent process to be more serious by security officers. But he is, in a sense, a right-wing critic of prevent. So he's accusing Muslim critics of failing to recognize he is himself part of a right-wing mobilization against the application of prevent to right-wing extremists. When he talks about reducing the net, as it were, for right-wing extremism or what prevent considers to be right-wing extremism and broadening the net for what is regarded as Islamist extremism or potential Islamist extremism, what kind of behaviours in the right-wing is he saying we shouldn't be referring to prevent? And what kind of behaviour in uh, amongst Muslims is he saying we should be referring to prevent? 
from the point of view of the right way, it's difficult to know because he doesn't give a definition of what would count as right-wing extremism that should be considered under prevent. There has been a commission for countering extremism. It's done a whole series of reports. He doesn't cite any of its reports on the risks of right-wing extremism. And even within the Home Office, the RICU group that assesses risks, he doesn't cite any of their reports in terms of saying what it is they are actually defining as right-wing extremism. He just says that they have drawn it too widely. So we have no basis within his report to know what he thinks should be there. But from other things that have been written by people who are closely aligned with him, we could say that among the things that is concerned about are expressions of anti-immigration, expressions of criticism of Islam, arguments about replacement theory. After all, he cites Douglas Murray as a positive source, and Douglas Murray himself advocates the position of replacement theory. And the replacement theory, or the great replacement idea, is that essentially that white Europeans are being replaced in Western Europe and Northern Europe by people of non-European heritage, essentially. Essentially, but also that Christian Europe is being supplanted by Muslims. So it has those two aspects to it, one which we might call is organised around race and ethnicity, and the other which is organised around religion. And it's one of the reasons why they wish to argue against the definition of Islamophobia, because under that definition, they would be making explicitly Islamophobic arguments. Afsal, I know many people in the Muslim community are suspicious, to say the least, and have been suspicious about Prevent right from its inception. How would you say it's generally regarded in the Muslim community? I think this, again, is part of my concern in a sense that, you know, even if we say that we accept there is a threat and that needs to be tackled, yes, fine. But then you need a buy-in from the community, and if you're not bringing the community on board, then it's towards the failure, isn't it? Uh, and, and that, I think, is the problem with this whole thing, the way they've dealt with it. The show cross himself uh, has basically come in with already preconceived ideas, and they are prejudiced ideas, actually. And then he's been drawing from people who are coming from that sort of background and bringing them to the center. And anyone who he doesn't agree with they're just sort of bad elements and pushing them aside. And in this sense, you know, there's so many organizations who are concerned about this person and this process because what people wanted to see was a genuinely independent assessment of the prevent. And in that sense, there's a journey of prevent. And for that, to understand which bits are working, which have been good, which bit have not been working. So we end up in a much better, stronger, healthier place, which is much more successful. And we failed on that. And we have this notion of what's called non-violent extremism. This was invoked in the Trojan horse incident in Birmingham when it was claimed there was an Islamist plot to take over some of the city schools. So that what might be deemed 
if you like, conservative Islam can be seen as triggers for intervention by prevent. Yeah, and I think uh, it just keeps going to the same idea, isn't it? Because when you look at the organizations he's sort of referred to, he just uh, thinks they're not good enough. There's a problem. When he says that MCB, which is the Muslim Council of Britain, is extremist, there's a problem because at the end of the day, they're actually mainstream. The Muslim Council of Britain is an umbrella organization of more than 500 Muslim organizations. How can you say that? You know, would you say that about other organizations which represent other communities? No, but this all goes back to their own agenda. And the definition point is also linked to this, why they don't want to accept it. Why is it that the APPG, which is a cross-political party sort of group in parliament, came up with a definition which is acceptable for virtually every other political party, but one political party thinks this is not good enough and then fails to come up with their own definition. And when you look at their own figures of the Home Office, year after year, you see a particular community being hammered with religious hate crimes. And around 40 to 50 percent of that community is Muslim. And you're referring there to the definition of Islamophobia. Yes, which they don't want to accept. And again, he himself is critical of, you know, he thinks there is nothing, no such a thing as Islamophobia. When you then look at the UN, UN itself has accepted it. And there's a day which is to mark to bring about awareness. So you've got that international level of UN accepting something. You've got something here where all political parties are even accepting it now. Many councils up and down are accepting it. Many national institutions are accepting it. But one single party is not accepting it. What do you think the problem is? I think the problem is they have got a problem with this whole agenda. They want to push a particular narrative, which then doesn't fit in. And this is why they're uh, attacking it, the definition. When you say they, just spell out exactly who you mean. I'm talking about the Conservative Party. And what is their their agenda? Well, their agenda basically is they're not accepting this problem. And what they're doing is bringing around individuals like Showcross, who got this prejudice uh, views already, which is well documented, to do a report which they know what he will produce. And then he goes and brings this report, which is biased, you know, which is not done fairly. So they're not dealing with the problem itself, but they're making the situation worse. Yes, I think what they're doing is creating a figure within the within their own invoked culture wars. So I think there's a very strong element of bad faith there, as Afsal is saying. So if you say that so you don't want a definition of Islamophobia, but nonetheless there is anti-Muslim hatred, we would expect to see the action on anti-Muslim hatred. There is no action. There's a cross-departmental group on anti-Muslim hatred, but it publishes no report. So they have no action in the area that they say, well, we're concerned about, but if we have a definition of Islamophobia, that will make it difficult for us to enact, prevent. If we have a definition of Islamophobia, as uh, Shawcross says, it's a form of blasphemy law by the back door. This is absolutely extraordinary set of statements and, of course, is not paralleled by his discussion of anti-Semitism within the 
report. And I think if one looks at the Trojan horse affair, then the Trojan horse affair was used for ideological purposes. So it did make arguments about extremism, nonviolent extremism, but not a single teacher was brought to a misconduct case for nonviolent extremism. The only charges against them were undue religious influence. But even that didn't hold up in the cases. And of course, the cases collapsed. And the cases collapsed because of misconduct by government lawyers. Yet no action was taken on the basis of the, the misconduct by the government lawyers. So what we have is the mobilization in the media of particular kinds of narratives and an inability on the part of anybody within the public to question those narratives without being accused of extremism. And that itself is really dangerous in democratic terms. And if you look in the small print of the Shawcross report, there's a really worrying definition of terrorism there. That is, it's action to secure political ends. What the government is moving to do is to suggest that any direct political action, whether they involve violence or not, whether they involve violence against a person, can be classed under the definition of terrorism. And that's why where groups like Extinction Rebellion are being brought under there. Of course, he doesn't say very much in the report about environmental process or direct political action, say the demonstrations or the counter demonstrations in Nosley. But what you can see is there is a basis to question political expressions which take place outside the formal political process, one which is dominated by party politics and dominated by official representation. So I think there's a really worrying anti-democratic element that sits at the heart of the Shawcross report. And Afsal, we can talk about this all we like. The whole point of Prevent is to ensure that people are not killed by terrorist actions. Do you believe there's a danger that in seeking to emphasise Islamist extremism and downplay far-right extremism, that Shawcross could actually be helping to make life more dangerous on the streets of Britain? I think there is a risk, and this was sort of my opening point, in a sense that if you focus just on one and ignore others, then there is a risk that they will get through the net. And there's enough evidence of that where far-right elements have led to loss of life. And also you can find this, you know, for myself, you know, I'm on the, on the public sort of a figure uh, there in the public domain. I regularly get abused, attacked, People have been taken to the court. You know, you've had the Muslim parliamentarians who were, I think there was some sort of powder was sent through to a number of them. Again, that threat element was there. You have a number of parliamentarians, you know, who have lost their life from the both sides. There are elements there, you know, whereas it looks as uh, David Amos as a, someone who was a good friend of mine, actually, who I knew who was killed. Now, he spends two pages talking about that. But then there are other incidents where the politicians have sort of lost their life. Joe Cox is another one, 2016, when she lost her life. Again, far right, that element is there. Rosie Cooper, 
you know, who someone who attempted on that again have been found guilty far right. So there's enough ed evidence that actually it's just not coming from one quarter, it's coming from different places. And for us as a society, what we need to make sure is our enforcement agencies' hands are not tied and they're not brought in to just focus on one, but look at the danger itself. And then wherever it comes from, you just tackle that, not have a position where there's a hierarchy of extremism. Afzal Khan MP, my thanks to him and to Professor John Homewood. Thanks also to Harvey White, who helped to produce this episode. My name is Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Do take out a subscription if you can. You'll not only be helping to support this podcast, you'll also get a fantastic monthly newspaper as well. Get more details over at bylinetimes.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you again soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.